0: Hi, I'm Anoush.
1: And I'm Stephen.
0: Al was on holiday this week. On today's New Statement podcast, we discuss Keir Starmer's approval ratings. And you ask us, could there be a progressive alliance in the upcoming by-elections? So Keir Starmer's approval ratings have dropped since the local election results. And Stephen, you reckon this is the thing the Labour Party should be most worried about. Why is that? You've been looking at, at polling for previous opposition party leaders, haven't you?
1: So yes, yeah, so I've written one piece about this and there will be a, a semi-spiritual sequel inspired by an excellent question and was retweeted into my feed on uh, election night, which was, what are the electoral events which have changed your thinking? And I thought, oh, I, well, I started to answer it and I thought, actually, I realised I'm going to do one for basically every election I've covered since um yeah in the the last period and the thing that has always been pretty clear but the correlation actually seems to have got stronger more recently is that broadly at the moment at this point in the parliament what the what the polling rating of the conservatives tell you is that they will get anything between 22% of the vote and 60% of the vote. And what Labour's opinion poll rating tells you is they'll get every, anything between 17% of the vote or 48%. Of the vote. I, Not a great deal, right, this, <laughs> as, as a predictive imp- instrument. Well, what tends to be much more useful and a much more important indicator are approval ratings. The thing that has been true, you know, true before the local elections, was true in the polls yeah, you know, on the day of the local elections themselves, is that Keir Starmer has had strong approval ratings. So basically, the the life of an opposition leader usually has a kind of, who's this fresh new face, in which their raw, so ignoring the disapproval rating, their raw approval goes up, right? Even uh, Corbyn, who was very unpopular at the end of phase one of of his leadership, um, obviously, the number of people who hadn't heard of him, uh, which is true of anyone who leads the opposition, people haven't heard of most politicians. Uh, at, the, at the end of that phase, people go like, oh, who's this fresh new face?" And then what tends to happen basically a year in is their numbers start to decline. People start to like, well, what does this guy ever do other than, you know, lose and complain? Which obviously the answer, if you're the leader of the opposition and the government has a majority, is not very much. They tend to go into a, a basically in sort of a secular bowl shape with the odd spike, which is usually connected to some, the government messing something up. And then basically all leaders of the opposition then get another spike at general election time. The thing that I have continued to believe is that it is more important to have a lead on approval and to have strong approval ratings. And then broadly, if you don't mess up in the mid-stage, i.e. the stage where you're kind of drifting a bit as the opposition leader, you've introduced yourself, you can't reintroduce really yourself again, basically, don't do stupid things.
0: Except it was more strongly worded in piece. Strongly worded, worded
1: <laughs> the piece. It was more strongly worded in the piece. Obviously, Keir Starmer's approval ratings have not gone down because of a shadow cabinet reshuffle. Most people do not know, you know, what an Angela Rayner is, and they, yeah, you know, they, they certainly wouldn't be able to understand like the reasons why that was badly handled, because they have uh, other things to do with their life than follow the minutiae of the Labour Party rulebook or cabinet formation in a parliamentary democracy. But I do suspect the the reason why the dip, and apparently this was the case in the Conservatives' focus groups and, and polling as well, the reason why the dip happened, not while Labour was losing all those seats, but In Labour's reaction was, I suspect, twofold. One, because the Labour Party's official line was, we're terrible, we've had these results coming to us for a decade. Well, so the official the loyalist position in the Labour Party is to disapprove how the Labour leader (laughs) is doing his job. So you would expect that message to be damaging to a leader's own 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 approval. Added to that, obviously politicians have to say things which aren't true in order to balance their internal needs, to fudge Difficult divisions, but I think they should avoid saying things which aren't true. And I think that the whammy of someone standing up during what is—I mean, as one minister said to me—they said we are never going to have a. They said, look, we're never going to have a better moment in in our lives as yeah as a as a government as a party. They said this is the the, the vaccine right is the biggest uncaviated success than we will ever have as a party. And they just said, and their and their theory about some of the problems. They said, look only it's a politician's answer for the opposition to go this is because of me and now I need to do the things I wanted to do anyway and I suspect then between those two those are a big part of why but because approval ratings have tended to be much more indicative yeah true in the Welsh elections where the Welsh elections be the most sort of clean recent example right you go into an election the Welsh Labour Party looks like it's going to have its worst election ever but oh look People think the First Minister's great, the handling of coronavirus is great, yet they claim they're going to vote for other parties. The election gets into gear, the campaign's basically a noun, a verb, and did you notice, or in some parts of the country, a verb, a noun, and did you notice that that, uh, Mark Drakeford uh, is First Minister? And of course, inevitably, the the Welsh Labour poll share moves in the direction of the Welsh Labour leader. And it's therefore much more important if if you're Keir Starmer in Shadow Cabinet, the most important priority is to reverse the losses of the last month i kind of think they can probably assume that if they can once again start tracking cameron's numbers which they were broadly doing beforehand and they get the basics right everything else will flow for itself but this i think is a much more important development and i think it's striking that it coincided not with the actual results but with the um with the reaction.
0: Yeah. My gut feeling is always whenever I speak to people, you know, when I'm writing about policy or certain policies that have been announced by the opposition party, um, you know, they say this policy is is popular, you know, in, in, in itself. Or or they say the Labour Party is trusted the most on the NHS. And polling and popularity is is divided down into policy areas or, or certain strengths that are associated with with the different parties. And I always have this <laughs> this sort of nagging feeling in my head that yes, but that doesn't actually matter unless the leader is is popular. Um, but I couldn't really sort of like put it down to any any sort of evidenced research. But I think it's definitely true. And that's why I found it quite interesting that I was hearing from voices on the left and the right of the Labour Party following the election results that you can't just change the leader and expect everything to be okay. I actually think you 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 can do that, and that is that is also my gut feeling. That when I was reading your piece, I sort of felt like it, it it it's it's being borne out, you know, at least slightly so far. Obviously, we're we're early on in Keir Starmer's leadership, but I think you should be able to do that if your approval, if the approval ratings are the the biggest decider in 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 how people feel about a party and, and how people vote. Um, and so that obviously presents the 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 eternal challenge for the Labour Party, which is. You know how do you create a new policy platform? Which you know they want to announce a bunch of new policies, and they're obviously having trouble articulating their vision. John Ashworth, uh, the Shadow Health Secretary, was on Breakfast TV struggling to uh, outline Labour's vision. He he looked really panicked and and said that the meetings about that were confidential, which was um, quite an amusing video that's that's um, that's been doing the rounds. And um, they've clearly been struggling with that, struggling with what kind of um, policies represent their 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 version of the Labour Party. What to put forward, but but it, I do think that. In this rush to try and define what Labour stands for, who it's trying to attract, who it's trying to speak to and answer those questions that you said, you know, about how, oh, we've all the self-flagellating that happened after the election results and how they've not been speaking to voters and not been listening and et cetera, et cetera, and basically making themselves look bad in people's eyes. How do they do that when actually the key question is how you improve the popularity of your leader and the other stuff will follow? Basically, what I'm trying to say is I feel like the challenge now is that they may suffer from overcorrecting in terms of policy, I mean.
1: I'm going to say something which sounds like it's paradoxical, but is I just think actually straightforwardly is, is less weird than it sounds, which is we have this situation where the Labour Party, since Keir Starmer became leader, has announced its fiscal framework. I was going to say new fiscal framework. Obviously, its fiscal framework is broadly the same as John McDonald's, but, you know, it's, it's a good fiscal framework. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? They've announced their fiscal framework. They've announced... A swathe of of welfare policies and they 've announced an ambitious program of environmental policies and they have announced interminable number of big and large tweaks to coronavirus policy and they 've announced a bunch of other policies about day to day and that is a bigger corpus of policy than uh, Jeremy Corbyn had announced um, by the end of the Easter recess in 2017, yeah, that very successful uh, policy blitz. That is, most of Ed Miliband's leadership had passed before they had announced this much policy. Yet, broadly, could could you describe Labour's vision in a nutshell? I mean, I I certainly couldn't. And, yeah, to, at risk of being a stuck record, I think it's one of those things where people often kind of fetishise the kind of, oh, well it's a problem that we can't because someone in the leader's office should have told us. Well, there are lots of things that someone in the leader's office can tell a journalist that they might not necessarily want to tell um, the public yet, or they might want to keep us a surprise. But a party's vision should be sort of obvious to anyone, right? You you should just be able to... Yeah, Any anyone who watches sort of TV casually should pick up the kind of vague contours of oh, um, under Cameron, the Conservative Party still likes tax cuts but no longer hates gay people and um, is, you know, opposed to climate change, right? That, and again, like Cameron had announced far fewer policies at this point in his leadership. Yeah, and, and John Ashworth is, you know, I think, well, as a great media performer. I think, perversely... Apparently, I'm just feeling like, yeah, burning as many bridges as possible. I think you can actually do a really good justification that when a party wants to demonstrate change, regardless of the faction of the people involved, the ministers for the Today programme need to be ushered out with the old leadership. So I think there was a case for saying, you know, goodbye, Andrew Gwynn, goodbye, Barry Gardner, goodbye, John Ashworth, goodbye, Becky Long-Bailey, even though those are quite different political traditions are represented across those four people and although the average person wouldn't be able to recognize pretty much any of those people well if you played someone they take like oh yeah i've heard that person defending the labor party on air just as you know james cleverly is a really good example in reverse right james cleverly is much closer politically to boris johnson than to theresa may but he was kind of the voice of the theresa may era because he was the kind of well, yes, we have failed to pass the withdrawal agreement and we have lost more councillors than we did under John Major in 1995, but things are going great. And there's an argument for yeah for, for refreshing those people. But the reason why John Ashworth got in trouble in that programme was not because John Ashworth has forgotten how to do a good TV interview. It's because the steer from the Labour leadership, I think correctly, in year one was a shadow cabinet that broadly was clearly from somewhere, right? You know, the, most of the Londoners had visible London accents, the Northern has had visible Northern accents, the Midlands has had normal, nor, visible uh, Midlands accents as opposed to, you know, accents like, you know, yours and mine, you know, like the kind of like nun brackets Southern Uni accent, which was kind of the dominant voice of the Labour Party under, under Ed, right? And, and essentially their, their brief was just reassure people that we're competent, we're not going to do anything too crazy. You know, Labour now non-threatening. A lot of people in the shadow cabinet now feel like, oh, wait, but so Annalise has been demoted um for doing the I have a regional accident and I'm non-threatening. And so another so someone not Ashwood said, they said, I'm now they said, I don't understand what I'm meant to do. They said because no one from the Leader's Office has told me what it is that they want, but my understanding of what they wanted was what Annalise was doing, and now I am Confused and perplexed, and I think that's one of the reasons why um, they have this situation where despite having a fiscal framework, climate policy right and it's that time in the podcast, other than crime and security where they really need to have a policy, they do have they ought to be able to answer that question, but I think it's because they're scared because of the direction of the leadership and I think it comes back to your point, which is the leader matters, a because if the leader's not popular, people don't believe any of the other stuff, but because the leader is the one who sets that direction, right There are so many answers we could bluff using the policies Labour has announced. Which one of them is the answer Labour wants to give? I don't know, you don't know, the Shadow Cabinet doesn't know. And that's why you have someone going, I guess it's confidential, because the one thing they do know is that they aren't meant to have a position.
0: Yeah, and you're, you're poor source who doesn't know what they're supposed <laughs> yeah. to be doing now. I mean, that's really interesting, because obviously, what they were doing before, people have been actively demoted for. And also, they've had to go on telly and say what they were doing before wasn't working. Like you say, being their own opponents opposing or, or criticising what what their own party was doing, which is you know confusing to voters and 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 doesn't really make sense when you're you're just tuning in casually as an observer, which is probably why Kistama's ratings have, have, have dipped so far since then, because of that self self flagellation. I also think in terms of trying to define yourself as a leader, I, I think that once you're doing something enough that you're getting mocked for it by the political class who who are, you know, getting fed this stuff a hundred times a day, whereas the public are only seeing it once or twice, that's when you've really made your mark. So David Cameron being mocked as hugger husky and hugger hoodie, that's because he was doing these these kind of photo ops um and he was giving off those vibes over and over again, you know, compassionate conservatism. All of his new branding for the conservative party. It was funny to the people who were following it and who had to report on it because it's sort of obvious political posturing. And, you know, you have these like semi ludicrous photo shoots, but that's, I think that's when you're in a good place in terms of trying to define yourself. So another one was when Boris Johnson stood in front of all of those police officers and some of them fainted or something. I can't remember what happened, but it was sort of like a. It was a joke in the political or sort of media sphere, but obviously it was giving off exactly the image that Boris Johnson wanted about um, recruiting all of these new police officers. Obviously, those are election sort of stunts and we're nowhere near a general election yet, but I think Keir Starmer should be giving off something that that we're able to mock at some point soon. Do you know what I mean? The thing
1: I find baffling, right, just because it's such a basic competence point, right? Like we never wrote, pieces about how it was clever than Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party announced its bank holiday policy every bank holiday didn't have a newsline because that's basic competence right it, but they seem to have this to me just utterly mystifying allergy to announcing a policy twice right so those policies I listed none of them have been announced more than once which doesn't make any sense because as you say unless it's got to a point where we're making fun of it i think the the police stunt is a case in point right everyone was going oh oh, another another stunt in front of him in front of police whereas what people heard was is oh that very damaging labor attack line about police cuts that's been fixed that no longer applies and the police cuts cuts is another case in point right then um diane abbott had to push through a lot of a lot of basically people making fun of, oh, why is she wanging on about that again? We've heard that. Labour has nothing else to say. In the part of being a good opposition is, um, yeah, I, 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 the term I coined, which I don't like because I think it sounds pejorative to both halves of the divide, which is really the worst bit of communication possible. But yeah, you know, the kind of thing, so there's you know, a fast world of politics and a slow world, right? But broadly, the, the people who follow politics very closely and the people who follow it sort of vaguely, right? Yeah, you're kind of, your your ultras and your casuals basically the the journalists are obviously all ultras because they have to be um and the audience and matters are the casuals and you have to push through the fact that the ultras start to whine and go oh yeah why are you hugging husky oh, oh a long-term economic plan oh why about the police cards and the problem is is the second then um you start to perform for those people now the thing which is kind of mysterious about um this setup is that they aren't... And, you know, you can you can see this just through, you know, the over of, say, Matt Chorley for the last six months, or Playbook for the last six months. They haven't really tried to cultivate bubble opinion. But at the same time, they seem to be really responsive to the kind of, oh, aren't you wanging on about this again? So... They kind of, whenever they land on a good message, it's like, um, as a conservative minister said to me, so after I wrote one of the what, the five pieces I've done going, okay, please stop reannouncing the same policy. They kind of texted me saying, this is a good attack line they have today and said, but don't worry, they'll, <laughs> they'll move on from it tomorrow. And it, it's true, right? then. then yeah, it's a bit naff for every other sentence to be, have you noticed this government is old and have you noticed that there's a problem with um, with law and order and, and criminal justice cuts? It's a bit embarrassing, but that is part of being an opposition party is just pushing through the embarrassment barrier of going, we know we're irrelevant. And I think that's been the weird thing is there's been lots of sort of public self-flagellation. I don't think there's actually been very much actual humility about, A, some of the avoidable mistakes, but B – the Labour Party, I think, has yet to come to terms with the fact that it is it is now an irrelevant relevant oppo- – it's now a normal opposition. And for most of the last decade, um, it, it was not a normal opposition because for the first five years, there was a hung parliament. For the last – for most of the last five years, there was a hung parliament. There was only a teeny tiny bit. And actually, if you think about some of the weird – like, yeah, kind of, oh, how's Labour going to whip on the Syria vote? I mean, who cares? The government's got a majority of 16 – the opposition can vote in as... Oppo- you know, if that had happened under John Smith or Tony Blair or David Cameron or Michael Howdy, so the subtext would not have been... Oh, it's they, they would have been able to go, actually, our position is, this is difficult for the government and we're going to make it worse. <laughs> um, because of this kind of... The fact that... It would have been irresponsible for Ed to do that kind of thing, and it would have been irresponsible for Corbyn in his second phase to do that kind of thing. But it's like they haven't really sort of gone, oh, wait, we don't matter. Um, We therefore just need to make the same announcements over and over again. Um, We kind of need to be more humble about how we operate and more humble about about the things they actually could have changed about last week, which were about the response rather than the result. But it feels like they haven't really done that.
0: If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think, and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. And now it's time for a section we like to call
1: You Ask Us.
0: So we've got a question today from James Cracknell. He asks, the upcoming by-elections in Chesham and Amersham and Batley and Spen present the ideal opportunity for a trial run of a progressive alliance. Is this being seriously considered by any of the parties? Um, Should we start by talking about Chesham and Amersham? Yep. Yeah. So what do you reckon about the um sort of the prospects of a of a progressive alliance if it ever happened in, in that?
1: Well so I think Chesham is not ideal for a progressive alliance for two different but quite important reasons. The first is that if the Greens are going to emerge as the natural third party, sorry, Molly Scott Cato, I mean the party able to be powerful enough to wield influence, which seems to me to be synonymous with being the third party, but, but you know, different strokes of different folks. Um, if they're going to become the natural uh, balancing force or what, whatever, but if they're going to fill that old Lib Dem slot, which is the only way they'll be able to get the changes they want, then at some point they need to be willing to burn through the pain barrier of being blamed for the Lib Dems failing to win Tory seats in by-elections and themselves becoming the force that wins... Tory seats and Labour seats in by-elections, right? And essentially, the Greens are not incentivised, I think, to to stand aside. Now, there are some people in the Green Party and some people in the Liberal Democrats who who vehemently disagree with me on this and think that the, rig, the big risks of the Green Party is if they have a really good third place, but the Lib Dems are clearly in second, then they just hand like, the Lib Dems this wonderful bar chart that they will use against the Greens everywhere, which is to go, look, the Greens are nice, but... You go to bed with the Greens and you wake up with a Tory and, and they will just, you know, they will can't win here, the Greens, in every single place where the two parties are a force at a local level, which they, they might be right, right? But this is very much one of those ones where, like, there's a big risk with big trade-offs either way and you, you don't get a go over. But, but I personally think – and this is – where a lot of where the center of gravity in terms of decision making seems to be in terms of my impression of the live land then the green party is better off making a fist of it themselves so they can have a strong third or even i mean I, I don't think they can get a strong second place but but if they could right then that's that's a great result for them so one of the components of the progressive alliance is not at play at all mm-hmm. but let's consider it from the liberal democrats objectives right which is to win that by-election they would have to get the fairly routine Lib to con swing in a by-election. Given that Chesham and Amersham was one of the few places where the Conservative Party went backwards in both 2019 and 2021, that bit's very easy. Then they need to squeeze the Labour Party down to its deposit. That bit's very easy. Labour's not going to seriously resource Chesham and Amersham. They have no prospect of doing so. And then they need to um, squeeze the Greens. That's very hard, for all the reasons we've just gone over. And then they need to get some votes off the Tories. Realistically... Everyone likes the Greens. Please, if you're a Labour or a Lib Dem activist, please do not write in about how they're actually bad. Uh, I don't care.
0: Uh,
1: voters love the Greens. So there is no harm if you are Labour or the Liberal Democrats in a leaflet. In fact, the reason why this leaflet would never go out is because people would like the idea. There is no cost if you're Labour or the Lib Dems to the Greens standing down for you. There is, however, and this is, I think, the thing that Progressive Alliance advocates just seem to not want to understand... There is a cost to the Green Party in some of those seats where they have won votes from the Conservatives. If the Labour Party stands down for them, there is a cost to the Liberal Democrats. If the Labour Party or, the, or if the if the Labour Party stands down, and there's a cost for the Labour Party in some seats if the Liberal Democrats stand down for them. And in Chesham and Amersham, I think the Lib Dems are much better off squeezing the Labour vote down to its deposit. And then getting a chunk of votes off the Tories, because essentially the argument that the Progressive Alliance people are making, even though I don't think a lot of them seem to understand, this is the the actual argument: is that the a thousand Labour votes that Labour still got in Richmond, having not resourced it, in which actual Labour members voted tactically for Sarah Olney, then that thousand votes is is worth more than the votes they would lose from the Conservative pile. From being able to go, Labour and the Lib Dems have teamed up. Thanks to the supplementary vote, we have a great case study here, which is the evidence is, is that there is a large chunk of the Lib Dem vote whose second preference are the Tories. Not as large as it used to be, but it's it's still bigger than that that final chunk of the Labour vote. So Chesham and Amersham just doesn't really work for that way. Now, Batley, I think, is slightly less complicated in that there possibly are benefits to Labour, but So what what the argument is, if you're the Labour Party in Chesham, you go, hey, we'll stand down and we will tell our voters that they should vote for one of the two of you. Um, but whichever one of you who doesn't get this this added boost from the late well boost this added boost from the Labour Party should also stand down to our benefit in Batley and spend it, the, the two actually don't quite work. But yeah, so what do you all kind of? Yeah, topic? I
0: think from covering some of the seats where some people argued there should have been progressive alliances, or there actually were unite to remain, you know, style pacts um, in the last election. These things. You know, occasionally they work, but these things usually fall apart when they collide with political reality, which is essentially what you've been saying there, which is, you know, if you do agree to something in one place, then it's going to disadvantage you somewhere else. It's going to piss off your local party there, especially, you know, the Lib Dems and Greens. They have very, very loyal, strong... Local operations, often these people have stuck with the local parties through thick and thin. You know, they are loyal. They're not there to play political games. They're actually loyal to the values of their party. And they, you know, they've probably been there and, 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 and supportive even when the party wasn't even a prospect in the seat, for example. So, so you end up pissing people off who are doing all of your work on the ground. And you also, uh, end up potentially sort of scuppering your chances. Um, of a, a beneficial alliance somewhere else if you refuse to, to work with X party in a certain seat. So it never, never really quite works, even though it looks so tempting. You know, if you're someone who voted remain and you're devastated to see sort of the path that this, well, that England appears to be going down and you're dreading another five or 10 years of conservative rule, I can really see, you know, why you're desperate for the parties that you, that you could stomach in government working together. I can see that, but it's, it's, it, it hasn't really worked so far, and, and the p- political reality means that it it probably won't. And also, as you say, Stephen, you know, the votes for the, the the progressive alliance, the potential progressive alliance parties, don't just come from one party, and they differ across the country in different seats. You know, I think the Greens got half of their gains from the Conservatives in the local, in the most recent local elections, for example. So it's not clear cut. Um, and in you know, in Cheshire and Amersham it wasn't long ago since ukip came second to the conservatives there it's not it's, it's it's not it's not clear that just just if one party stands aside for another so if the greens stand aside for the lib dems there that it that it's necessarily going to well i mean it could probably could benefit the lib dems this time round but the but politics there are complicated you never know what's going to happen there in the next election which will make the greens feel used maybe make them feel more reluctant to help the lib dems out elsewhere um chesham and amersham you know it's been written up as a sort of leafy buckinghamshire seat you know the blue wall where the tories are falling behind and yes that you know they have done in nationally favorable circumstances in recent years but there's a lot of deprivation in in the chiltons um, the chilton towns are some of the worst for social mobility in england for example so you don't know what kind of results this by-election will throw up, but particularly you don't know come the general election. And that means that if I was, you know, part of the Greens operation, I would probably say that you shouldn't stand aside for that because the reputation that you lose as a burgeoning, you know, third party off the back of the momentum of the local elections, um, is not worth it, I don't think, because the, the Conservatives could well win that, that by-election. Um, they've they've always won an absolute majority in that seat before you know even in elections where where they didn't they didn't do so well compared to the national picture um, and then in Batley and Spen my reasons for being a bit hesitant about the chances of a progressive alliance there are more localized so i went to go and cover the by election in Batley and Spen in 2016. I did a lot of reporting there. And listeners will probably remember that the main parties didn't apart from Labour didn't stand because out of respect for Joe Cox who had been killed representing her seat. Um which was, you know, which was appreciated by people there. They understood why the decision had been made and the point was made very respectfully by a lot of people that I interviewed there that they wished that they did have a choice actually. And I think having experienced such a sort of weird recent few years of politics in that seat, I don't think they'd necessarily appreciate not having that choice. You know, I don't think anything that's sort of could be presented by political opponents as a as a stitch up would be necessarily welcomed by, by voters there because of the way things panned out last time round. So I think there's a bit of sensitivity there. Obviously, that's incredibly idiosyncratic to that seat. The,
1: the, the thing is, it's, Yeah, the weird thing is both of these seats are kind of being discussed in the context of what happened in Hartlepool, despite the fact Mm -hmm. they are really different from one another and really different uh, (laughs) from Hartlepool. I can feel by the time of the Batley by-election, I will have got an ulcer from people referring to a seat that was Conservative until... 1997 as, <laughs> as red wall a term which just now basically like if you if Labour loses a seat it's red wall right yeah. like and the more Labour loses the red wallier it is right yeah like the
0: bigger the red wall yeah. was Westminster yeah. that's in the red wall now
1: yeah <laughs> Kensington red wall right yeah the thing that's important to understand the realignments in England is the collapse of the Liberal Democrats right. The collapse of that anti-system voter that basically went Lib Dem two thousand and five, Lib Dem twenty ten, UK, sorry, UKIP twenty fifteen, and then a little bit to Corbyn, mostly to May, and then overwhelmingly going to Boris Johnson. Right, and that is essentially the political problem that the that the Labour Party has, which is that part of Tony Blair's success wasn't just winning Tory votes; it was splintering the Tory vote to the to the five wins. Mm. And it's not clear in places like Batley and Spen. So, for example, several people in both the Conservative, Liberal Democrat, and Labour campaigns all think that if the Lib Dems had done a bit better ironically enough in Hartlepool. They think Labour did a great considering how well the Greens in particular did nationwide Labour clearly did a great job squeezing the progressive vote in Hartlepool. That was basically the only thing you can say they did well in Hartlepool. But the thing is quite interesting is if you you know yeah, someone shows, if they looked back at who they how they knew people had voted in the past, you know, long-term residents, yeah, people who'd voted Lib Dem in Hartlepool in 2001, Lib Dem in the 2003 by-election, Lib Dem in uh 2005, Lib Dem in 2010. UKIP or one of the variegated parties of the far right who are fairly well organized there, Brexit Party and now Conservative. They like, Well, if you they said, look, if you assume that the Lib Dems had even managed to win back some of their old voters there, they said, Well, we wouldn't have won we wouldn't have been able to win the seat if they had got up to yeah, you know, if, if 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 they had if Labour had done a good job squeezing the Lib Dems on their flank, but we hadn't been able to reti- to pick up those votes. And again in fact, like, it's not yet yeah, it's really not clear that the votes you get from a party standing down aren't actually a net loss to you. So, yes, well, actually, I was, we're still waiting for them to publish the second preferences in uh, in Batley and Spen in the mayoral election. But it's really not clear there whether or not that helps them, not least because the Yorkshire party, who are, you know, not a joke, they are a serious, well-organized uh, local party, I think if the Lib Dems didn't stand... I, I would, I would imagine that the preference is that Labour isn't going to squeeze on a. It's us, all the Tories. They ain't going to to the Labour Party. They're going to the Yorkshire Party, which complicates the by election yet further. And this is, I mean, I just think this is the central problem with the Progressive Alliance. Is that it makes sense if your understanding of those three parties are elections they fight against one another in our core cities. But they don't make sense in terms of the votes that they win against the Tories yeah. in the towns and, let alone in rural. I mean, this is the other thing: is how are the Lib Dems going to fight this by election uh, in Chesham? How are the Greens going to fight it on opposition to planning in the case of the Lib Dems and high speed two in the case of the Greens? Again. Can someone explain to me the finessing of a Labour pact, a Labour pact in which the Labour party goes, these planning reforms, which I kind of assume they will, well, I think possibly the Tories will abandon them before they get to the House, but I assume that the Labour party will vote for them. Yeah, they'll probably do some amendment about, look, you need to do more on social housing, which is, I I make that sound much more trivial than it is, uh, which is a really important missing component. but they will ultimately vote for the, the broad th- thrust of these planning reforms. What, so they're going to be, oh, well, these planning reforms are terrible other than in Cheshire and Amersham. So again, it's unhelpful to, to think, but what, are they going to be against high speed too now? Seeing as Labour really just needs to run up the score with working people across the country, this idea that they are not going to have a fairly radical housing policy if they want to be at the races at all. So they can't they can't be flirting with... The, with the sort of the more nimby-ish stuff than the third parties are doing. It's just bad for them. Like, the, a progressive alliance is a product with a cost. Yet let's not forget that in 2012, a majority of Lib Dem second preferences went to Boris Johnson. In 2000, a majority of Lib Dem second preferences went to Stephen Norris. And they were fairly even, you know, the, the, these parties aren't aren't one block. That's why they're different parties.
0: You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleague, Stephen Bush. If you'd like to submit a question for the You Ask Us section of the podcast, you can email one in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk. We're produced by Chris Stone, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Please leave us a review, and thanks for listening.